Hello and welcome to Hillcrest to Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Your Part and God's Part in Spiritual Growth. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Goodman. Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit who received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Marissa, for reading our text today. In C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity, he says something really interesting. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one, you thought, uh, uh, the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Have you ever thought about your life, your Christian life in that way? Last week, we began a four-week study through one of the most magnificent chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And I'm calling the series Engaged. Now, usually, especially right around Valentine's Day, when people hear the word engaged, they assume uh, that the word is in reference to a couple who've been dating for a while and they've decided to get married, so they get engaged. But we use that word in a lot of different settings, not just there. When we really like a particular book, we say to somebody, it really engaged me. Uh, soldiers might get together and reminisce and remember about the time they engaged the enemy. And so the, the theme of these four weeks in February is that you and I, according to Romans chapter 8, all the verses of Romans chapter 8, you and I are to passionately engage with a God who is, who is passionately engaged 
with you. Now, last week we began our study by looking at verses 1 through 4. This week we're looking at verses 5 through 17. Last week's verses were about what God has done with our sin in the past. This week's verses is about what God is doing with our sin and our harmful habits now. Last week's verses were about justification. This week's verses are about sanctification. Last week's verses were about how God freed us from guilt and the eternal punishment of our sin through the work of the Son. And now this week's verses are about how God sets us free from those bad habits and those bad routines through the work of the Spirit, the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives. In today's passage, we discover our part and God's part in our spiritual growth. Now, a lot of times when we think about spiritual growth, we mostly think about our part. We think about things we need to quit doing. We need to think about discipline we need to maintain. We think about habits that we need to form. And so it's right for us to start there about our part in spiritual growth. So let's look at it. According to these verses, there are two things that make up our part in spiritual growth. Write this down. You need to feed something. That's one thing you need to do. You need to feed something. You need to nourish and develop the desire for God's ways. In verses 5 and 6, Paul says your life is governed by what your mind is set on. Now we hear that word mind and we think about thinking. And so we assume that spiritual development involves the intellect, it involves thinking about things properly. And there's no surprise because most of us, we come out of an educational system or we come out of a way of, of uh, developing you know, social sciences and making social improvements that is all about education. So we assume that people would be less likely to be engaged in smoking if they knew the harmful effects of smoking. So we try to educate them about that. Or if they just knew the consequences of casual unprotected sex, they'd be less likely to have casual unprotected sex. And so it's all about educating people and then their lives would change. As Dr. Phil says, how's that working out for us? You know, just because we educate each other about certain things doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to change. But when we come into church, that's the assumption we have as well, that spiritual growth involves just getting smarter about the Bible. If we knew more about the Bible, if we knew more about the spiritual harm to our choices and, and, and so on, it would be, it would be so much better. Uh, but the, the spiritual maturity is involved or uh, does involve education. It does involve reading God's word and learning more about the consequences of not doing what God wants us to do. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not dismissing that. But spiritual growth is so much more about knowing certain things and it's about coming to desire the things that you've come to know. It's not knowing more, but desiring what you're coming to know that makes you a better person over time. It's not just collecting more facts and getting more information, but coming to see that information as beautiful. You know, the old Puritans had it right. The Puritans spoke often about the affections. Now, when we think about affection today, we think about an affectionate person. We're thinking about somebody who's emotionally sort of warm and approachable uh, toward us or us toward them. And that, that was an element of it. But the affections had to do with what you desire, what you long for, what you think about during your spare time. It's your affections that need to change. And so when Paul said, set your mind on certain things, he was speaking about 
letting your affections develop to a point where you are, that where you find the things you're learning to know, you're finding them beautiful, you're finding them lovely. In verse 5, the phrase we translate, set the mind, it was used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, and uh, it was translated differently there. But in reprimanding Simon Peter, Jesus said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. In other words, these, these things are not your priority. These, not, these things aren't guiding your life. I love the King James Version at that particular point in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. The King James Version says, Thou savorest not the things that are of God. You see, that, that's what it means to set your mind on something, to savor it. You know, when you have a piece of candy in your mouth, what does it mean to savor that candy? It means to roll it around on your tongue, to find the taste of it delightful. That's what we need to do as well. We need to study God's Word for sure. But when your mind is set on something, it's not just about more knowledge. It's about your longings and your desires and what you really aspire to and what you hope to achieve and what you grieve when you don't achieve it. According to verses 5 and 6 of Romans chapter 8, it's not what you know but what you savor that actually begins to make changes, permanent changes in your life. And so if we want to become better people, we need to feed our longing for uh, the things of God. We need to get to a point where we are savoring them. Now, now, how do we get to that point? Well, there are a number of ways, a number of things that we can do, but one of the most important things you can do to get to the point where you are savoring the things of God is to do what you're already doing right now. Just show up on Sundays with God's people in a service like this. Now, I don't mean that you need to show up in a service like this like a man I saw at a gym I went to at one point. I used to go to Lifetime Fitness and be involved there on a regular basis. And there I would see this, this senior adult couple come in on a regular basis. They were both dressed for working out. He had on gym shorts and sneakers and a, and a workout shirt, just like, like she did. But they were probably part of the Silver Sneakers program or something like that, so they had this cheap membership to get into the gym. And, but as she went into her workout class, he went and sat on the couch in, in the hallway and scrolled through the apps on his phone. And after uh, an hour, uh, she would come out of her workout class, kind of sweaty, toweling off the sweat and that kind of thing. And they would both stand up and they would both leave Lifetime Fitness. Now, at your annual physical, when the doctor asks if you go to the gym regularly, that doesn't count, just in case you need to know. Now, I don't want you to be like that guy when it comes to coming into here. Just showing up in this place, just being under this roof on a regular basis isn't going to get you any more to the point where you're savoring, where you're desiring the things that, that are of God. But when you come into this place and you and you engage, when you build friendships with people and you hear the stories of what God is doing in other people's lives and you respond to their questions in the life group and you pray for each other. And when you're in this area right here and you're, 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 you're singing about things that are true and you're learning about things that are true from the Word of God, you do that and over time you're not just going to get more knowledge, it's going to reorient your desires to that knowledge. It's going to reorient your heart to that, to the point that you are delighting in what you are reading and discovering about. And that's when real changes start taking place. So according to, today, today, to today's text, we have to feed something. We have to feed 
this desire to glorify God with our lives. But then this passage tells us another part about what you and I must do, and that is we need to starve something. So write that down. You need to feed something, and you need to starve something. Or as Paul put it in verse 13, we have to put to death the misdeeds of the body. So there are some behaviors and some attitudes that we need to cut out. There's some behaviors and attitudes that we need to replace with better behaviors and attitudes. You know, we tend to coddle our sinful choices and our negative attitudes, don't we? We uh, tend to look upon things that we haven't been able to fix, things that we haven't been able to overcome in a while, and eventually we just make truce with the devil on those things. We wave the white flag of surrender and we say, you know, as long as you don't bother me any further, I won't bother you any further. You know, a pastor I knew one time, he called those Popeye moments. You know what I mean? Popeye was a sailor man. He ate spinach straight out of a can. He had a thing for a gal, skinny gal named Olive Oil, and he had a special place in his heart for a little baby named Sweet Pea. Uh, but he would often wax philosophical about his life. And when he would talk with people about what they expected of him or what he expected of himself, he would say, I am what I am. And if he was feeling particularly philosophical, he would add, and that's all that I am. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, don't ever let yourself have a Popeye moment when it comes to your sins. You need to put to death the misdeeds of the body. So it's what we feed and what we starve that makes us better people. And it's both at the same time, not one or the other. Back when I was in college, taking counseling classes, taking social sciences classes and that kind of thing, you know, the debate would often be raised in class. How do we make people better? How do we make society better? Is it, is it better to get people to think themselves into a new way of acting or to get people to act their way into a new way of thinking? You read Romans chapter 8 and Paul says the answer is yes. It's both. At times we need to change our mindset and our right behavior will follow. At other times we may not be fully convinced we can do it, but we know it's supposed to be done. And so even if we don't have our heart fully set on it yet, if we just do the right things, we find that our attitudes start falling into line as well. So it's not one or the other. It's both and at the same time. We need to feed something and we need to starve something. And it's an ongoing process. It's not just something you do just once and you're done with it and you don't have to battle with it ever, ever again. Scholars tell us that the verb tenses that we find in this portion of Romans chapter 8 is in the perfect tense. And basically what that means is that it is referring to ongoing action. You don't go to a revival service and have a powerful spiritual moment and from that point on, you never have to keep putting to death the things that are wrong about your life. It, you know, as if in just one powerful spiritual moment, it's all taken care of. No, it's an ongoing process of feeding more and more our desire, our, 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 our longing, our savoring for God and putting to death those things that need to be put to death. So today's passage tells us in no, no uncertain terms that we have a part to play in our spiritual development. But the astonishing thing is that God has a part to play in our spiritual development too. I say that this is astonishing, or at least to many people it's astonishing, because for a lot of people, they think Christianity is just another form of moralism. You know what I mean? Moralism says, 
here are the things to do, now go off and do them. Moralism assumes that we're fully capable of doing these things on our own. If we were just disciplined enough, educated enough, uh, we'd be able to do these things, so go off and do them. Every world religion other than Christianity is just another version of moralism. Every self-improvement program out there, every motivational speaker out there is just, it's just another version of moralism. And so when somebody comes into a church, they just assume that Christianity is just another shade, another branch of moralism. If all Christianity was was moralism, we'd be done with the sermon right now. Here's your part in making a difference in your life. Now go home and do it. But that's not what we find in Romans chapter 8. God has a part to play in our spiritual development too. Now, I want you to circle a couple of phrases in the verses on your sermon notes or in your Bible. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we read in Circle the words, in Christ Jesus. There is, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I told you last week that I wanted you to, to fill in that blank. There is now no condemnation for, and then put in your name. There is no condemnation for Tom, who is in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for Sarah, who is in Christ Jesus. So last week we looked at what it meant to be in Christ Jesus. But this week we look at what it's like for Christ to be in us. So in verses 5 through 17, look at Romans 8, verse 10. Circle the phrase, Christ in you. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So last week's study was about what it means to be in Christ Jesus. This week's study is about what it means for Christ to be in you. When you became a Christian, you united yourself to Jesus. You are in Him. We looked at that last week. But here's the thing. When you ask Jesus to come into your life, guess what? He came into your life. Christ Jesus is in you. And over and over again, these verses talk about God within his people. Look at verse 9. The Spirit of God lives in you. Look at verse 10. Christ is in you. Look at verse 11. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Romans chapter 8 is about the work of the Spirit. There are more references to the Holy Spirit in this chapter than in any other chapter of the Bible. If you've read through the book of Romans, you know that, that, that Romans chapter 8 is at really the halfway point, the, the mountain peak of the book of Romans. So chapters 1 through 7, there are about five references to the Holy Spirit. The second half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, there are about seven references to the Holy Spirit. And right in the middle, this passage we're looking at, Romans chapter 8, there are 21 references to the Holy Spirit. This chapter is about God in you doing His work. God doesn't just tell us to become better people and then just sit up in the throne room of heaven waiting for us to do what He tells us to do. He's much more like a lifeguard. You know, when a, when a lifeguard by, by a pool see somebody drowning. He doesn't just re remain up in that chair with that zinc oxide on his nose, shouting, swim harder! But that's what we assume that God is because we come from this spirit of moralism that assumes that everything we read in the Bible is just another shadow of moralism, where God is up in heaven saying, swim harder! But what does a lifeguard do? He jumps into the water. He joins a drowning person in his distress. 
and brings him to safety once again. That's what God is like. So I said earlier that if you want to grow spiritually, you need to feed something. You need to starve something. But did you notice as we were going through that, that all that work that, was being, that, that, that you were being told to do, did you see how closely the Holy Spirit was at work with you to do those things? Let's look at it again. So in verses 5 and 6, we're told to feed something. It's something we must do. He says we need to set our mind on the things of God. But we do so as those who live in accordance with the Spirit and as our minds are governed by the Spirit. So it's something we do, but God is involved in, in that rescue as well. Look at, again, verse 13. We are told to starve something. It's something we must do. He says we must put to, de to, uh, put to death the misdeeds of the body. So that involves personal discipline. That involves the, the, the strength to say no. That, that involves rising up and being strong against temptations. There's something you must do. But he says it is by the Spirit that you put to death the misdeeds of the body. So there's hard work that you and I must do but it's all done in accordance with the Spirit living within us. Now, does it always feel like the, the Spirit is nearby while we're going through difficult times, while we're going through temptation? It doesn't always feel that way. We feel sometimes so alone. We're facing despair or we're facing a temptation, and we wonder, where's God in the midst of this? Why isn't He coming through for me? It's, it's usually on the other side of that when we're looking back over that trial, that we realized that God was with us all along. He was the one that put that song on the radio just at the right time to make us redirect our thinking. He was the one that prompted that friend to, out of the blue, seemingly, send us a text just at the right time. He was the one who called back to our minds some little scripture we learned in childhood or in our teenage youth group that we hadn't thought about for years and all of a sudden right there we remember it all over again the holy spirit is involved in the work that we must do to become better people it's usually only as we look back on that that we really realize that i wonder if you notice how comprehensive god's involvement is in your life what it means to be human involves three things it involves thinking it involves acting and it involves feeling. All three of those are involved in what it means to be fully human. And the Holy Spirit is involved in all three aspects of what it means to be human. So first of all, we think with the Spirit's help. Verse 5, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. And then we act with the Spirit's help. Verses 13 and 14, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. And then we feel with the Spirit's help. Verses 15 and 16, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children particularly on that last one, you see what, what the Spirit is doing is reminding us that we're God's kids. And some of us say, how can, how can that help us to be better people? Wouldn't that make us maybe be a little casual toward fixing our sins if we think that God's love never goes away from us? If that's the case, then you really haven't thought about what it means to have God as your Abba Father. Those of you, those of us who had good parents, we know what it was like growing up to 
the greatest desire of our heart was to do something that would make them proud. And we wanted to avoid those things that would make them disappointed. And so knowing that we were secure in their love didn't make us casual or, or indifferent toward our behavior. It drove us toward doing what we knew that they would like us to do and it causes us to avoid doing what they didn't want us to do. The Spirit is in our hearts helping us to understand our true relationship with God. He is our Father. And the more we grasp that, the more we understand that, it will not make us indifferent or casual or not make us shrug our shoulders at our sins. No, instead, we will want to do everything we can to please Him, our Abba Father. You know, the reality is that some of us tend to focus only on one or the other of these three aspects of what it means to be human. We think that that's where Christianity really lies. And we expect our churches to focus on that aspect of what it means to be human as well. So for some people, they come into a church and they, they decide whether to stay at that church or they decide whether to join that church as to whether the pastor makes them think. If the pastor can give them something that will stimulate their brain cells, that's Christianity for them. There are other people who don't necessarily want a preacher to spend so much time on what a Bible passage means. They don't want the pastor to spend all this time explaining what a Bible word means or the verb tense or that kind of thing because that's not as practical, that's not as relevant for our life. Give me three steps to battle porn. Give me five steps to a better marriage. Christianity is about action. And then there are other people who are all about the vibes. They're all about how something makes us feel. There was a woman in in one of my previous churches and, and every time there was a service that particularly moved her, she would come up to me after the service and say, oh, we had church today, preacher. You know what she was saying? She was saying, you moved me today. There was something that made a tear come to my eye today. So for her, it was all about the vibes. It was all about how she felt. That was church for her. But if human beings are made up as thinking people, acting people, and feeling people, then the Holy Spirit is involved in all three aspects. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, will cause your church to be involved in all three aspects of your life as well. You will have something to think about when you get out of a service. You will have some practical steps to take when you get out of a service. And hopefully you'll be moved and inspired and driven emotionally to want to do those things for the glory of God as well. So you have a part to play and God has a part to play in making you holy. Will you do your part? And will you let God do his part in moving you along in your sanctification, knowing that he has justified you in Jesus Christ? You know, I began with the book, Mere Christianity. It seems just right to end this study today with a section from this book as well. Uh, This book came out in the 1940s during the bombing of London. And this was originally a series of BBC radio addresses called The Case for Christianity. And that's why if you've ever read the book before or ever thumbed through it, the chapters are so very, very short. Now, I was not introduced to this book during the bombing of London, Uh, just to clarify. But I was introduced to this book when I was in college, and it has made such a profound difference on my life through the years. Here's something else that he has to say about this book. About, about this Christian life. He said, I find a good many people have been bothered by our Lord's words, be ye perfect. Some people seem to think this means unless you are perfect, I will not help you. 
And as we cannot be perfect, then if he meant that, if he meant that, our, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he meant that. I think he meant the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will not give you anything less. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he said, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that's what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And yet, this is the other and equally important side of it, this helper who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection will also be delighted with the first feeble, stumbling effort you make today to do the simplest duty. Isn't that beautiful? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit to him to do our part and ask him to do his part in making us who he wants us to be. Now, as we're in prayer, these words are primarily for believers because it's about developing in your relationship with God, growing in your understanding of what it means to have Christ in you. But there's a message here for those of you who need to become believers or become believers again today. And so, first of all, how should we pray as believers? The first thing we need to do is repent. We need to repent for just being satisfied with being a decent little cottage when God means to make of us a palace. We need to repent of the Popeye moments. We need to repent of waving the white flag of surrender in the battle for holiness. We need to set our minds on certain things and we need to put to death certain things. And so we need to pray this, Dear Lord, forgive me for coasting. Forgive me for not engaging with you in the work of holiness. I recommit to setting my mind on things that are right and putting to death things that are wrong, and I ask for your help. But with our heads still bowed in prayer, I, as I said, others of us here are not yet believers. You came along with a parent or a partner, but you don't necessarily believe in what they do. And yet in the music and in the message today, you've heard something. You've heard someone say you were meant for more. And so maybe you need to pray something like this. Dear Lord, thank you for dying on the cross to take away my sin. Come into my life and help me to make the changes I know I need to make. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would listen to your children pray and that our week this upcoming week would be different because of our commitment or our recommitment to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a message titled, Reminiscing About the Future. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.